0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak to retired Special Agent B. DeFazio. Now, B. was with the FBI for 23 years, seven as a member of the Special Surveillance Group, SSG, following spies in New York, and 16 as a Special Agent with the FBI in the Philadelphia Division. During the last half of her agent career, B was assigned to ferret out child predators trolling in online chat rooms. She started an Innocent Images National Initiative Group One Undercover Program, setting up the internet and phone lines and purchasing the computers she and her partner needed to use to pose as children and teens. In this online undercover role, she engaged in conversations with child predators in an attempt to identify and gather the evidence to arrest them for soliciting in-person contact for sex and for exchanging child pornography or more appropriately labeled child sexual exploitation images. B says that this emotionally difficult work was by far the most rewarding thing she did for the FBI. B also talks about her collateral duties as a member of the Evidence Response Team, ERT, and how she and her teammates immediately after the terrorist attacks at the World Trade Center were assigned to the Fresh Kills Landfill, where they shifted through debris, looking for evidence, personal effects belonging to the victims, and human body parts. Before we get to the interview, I just have two really quick things I want to say. First of all, I have to give a shout out to Rosaline. Rosaline sent me an email letting me know that she was driving cross country and that while doing so, she was listening to FBI Retired Case File Review. I am so pleased that as she drove that I was there to keep her company and entertained. The other thing I have to tell you is that on Saturday, a box arrived, and in it were five proof copies of my debut novel, Pay to Play. I was thrilled to actually hold the uncorrected proof in my hand. I cannot wait until this book is released on September 20th. All right, here's the show.
1: Hi, everyone. I want to welcome my guest for today, De DeFazio. Hey, B. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So I'm really excited about talking to you about innocent images and crimes against children and learning a little bit more about what it takes, you know, for, for you to investigate, you know, child predators. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about
2: you, when you joined the FBI, and why you joined the FBI? Okay. Well, I actually joined uh, back in 1984. I always wanted to uh, get into law enforcement, and I had a professor in college that kind of got me interested in the FBI. So that's uh, actually how I got started. And uh, after I, you know, took the interview, the initial interview as a clerk in Newark, I stayed there for a couple months, and then I went to. what they call the Bureau has a, an SSG program, special surveillance group. that's a non-agent position, uh, and I worked in New York City for about seven years doing, you know, FCI work. Then I decided I was going to take the agent test because that's, you know, why I had gotten into the Bureau, and I took the test. I wound up going to Quantico back in uh, February of 91, where uh, I graduated in May, and I was sent to the Philadelphia office. So, and uh, back then, you had to be um, go to the applicant squad for, for six months where you did background checks, so I did that and then I, um, had the opportunity to, to work white collar crimes and, uh, bank fraud. And I actually had an opportunity to go to, um, Russia with the director, uh, Free at the time, uh, regarding a, uh, uh, Russian money laundering case that I had. And then I was asked by our, our ASAC at the time if I would take over our, uh, innocent images program in Philadelphia. And I was, uh, jumped on board with that because I was, uh, you know, I, it was very, uh, rewarding you know violation to work so I started uh, that and I'm trying to think exactly the same of uh, the date I think it was around 2000 and uh, after I got uh, done with the training and all that I said to my supervisor at the time I said I think we really should get a um, uh, what they call an instant images program up so I wrote the group one which is uh, basically an undercover operation and I wrote that Got that approved by headquarters and by Philadelphia, and then um, we went down to Baltimore where they do all the training, and I learned how, you know, we had to set up undercover computers and undercover phone lines and, you know, how to get on these chat rooms that these the predators were in and, uh, you know, how, how they act with them and, you know, what to say and that type of thing. And then so uh, we got that approved, so we set up our undercover operation, and that's how it all began, so... Now, you said that the ASAC
1: came to you and Mm -hmm. asked you if uh, you would start working that violation. Tell us more about that, because normally, you know, -hmm. know, you're told where
2: you're going to go. Why did he have to ask you? Well, it's not really a violation that everybody could work. It's hard to explain. It kind of weighs on you after you see a, a lot of things that go on in it. And I guess he thought that I had the, te- the even temperament and the you know the ability to handle that kind of uh, you know stressful situations that it would take. And uh, you know I had heard about the program and and I had you know talked about it. i not specifically with him, but my other supervisors. So that maybe got back to him that I was interested and in, I uh, you know I was really honored that he thought that I would be able you know to handle such a situation.
1: Now, it's a difficult program. I was asked if I would be interested in working it Mm -hmm. and with three small kids i had to make the decision no when you're working uh crimes against kids you know you have to look at those pictures which are basically images of child abuse and for me Mm -hmm. i thought it would be very difficult to have that in my head and to Mm -hmm. be able to go home you know and, and be with my children and i know many agents you know who have kids can do it and many agents who don't have kids you know, are able to do it. And right. so I admire you so much. Somebody has to work it. We need people to work that type of violation. So I admire you that you, I don't know what the best word to use, but, you know, put your mental health right on the line in <laughs> mm-hmm. order to work this violation. Can you talk to us about that? You know, when you first saw
2: some of the child predator images. Well, I, when, um, you know, when you go into for the training, you really – you can't you can't prepare yourself to see what you're going to see. You know, they, people can tell you about it and say, well, this is what you know you, what you might feel and how you're going to look at it. But until you actually see, you know, some of the images, which um, as you described, are pretty horrific, you can't really know how you're going to feel about it. And uh, we, you know, we, we do go uh, for um, mental health assessment. I want to call it once well, we did once a year. Uh, where they did, you know, the, actually the agents that did the actual undercover work, they go uh, twice a year, but they sent us just once a year for it. And, you know, we had to take the test and the interviews, and if they didn't think we were, you know, able to still handle it, um, they wouldn't have let us continue to do it. So, But it, it's it, like I said, it's hard to describe unless, you know, you um, actually see the images. And it's probably easier to, to talk to somebody about it who has already seen them because they kind of know what you've been going through and, uh, you know, it does take a toll. And, and I can understand why, you know, there was a lot of, uh, guys on my squad that, um, you know, I would ask them for help on cases. And some of them said, I can't do it for you. Or some, you know, most of them were willing to, you know, help me out, you know, 100%. But it, it's a difficult, uh, violation because, you know, your first instinct is when you see this stuff that you want to, like, strangle a guy doing it. You know, and, uh, you can't do that. You have to, when you interview these guys, you actually have to be, uh, almost polite to them. And, uh, and so why is that? Well, because they react better to that. Um, they don't. If somebody, you know, some big tough guy comes in and says, you're, you're going to tell me this, this, and this because you did this, this, and this, they're just going to shut down on you. And I would say that I, I'd say about 95% of the time when I started talking to them, they just kind of opened up and, you know, trying to make excuses for why they did what they did. And you have to, you know, you have to act like you understand why they did it. And that's extremely difficult because you're you know, you're saying you you're saying to them, well, I can understand that you know they enticed that the, that the victim enticed you and wanted you to do that, whereas you know that did not happen. But you have to kind of like try and put yourself into their mindset, if that makes sense. Oh,
1: it, it does, and mm-hmm. really, that's no different than how we interview every subject. I mean, on on TV Mm -hmm. they make it sound like, you know, you're always tough and shouting screaming at people. But in reality, Mm -hmm. for most FBI uh, interviews, if Mm -hmm. you want to call them interrogations, you know, we try to be as nice, you know, we're here for you, we're here to Mm -hmm. help as we can be because we're trying to pull information out of people.
2: Exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: But in your situation, oh my God, uh, you know, to try to Pretend, you know, that you uh, understand and that they were justified in what they were doing. Right. Uh, again, uh, you know, the, the mental toll that that could possibly take on, you know, an agent working this kind of stuff is, you know, you, you can see exactly, you know, how, how hard that could be.
2: Yeah, it, it, like I said, you, you know, you, you see things that um, like a normal person is Hopefully, you know, God willing, will never come in contact with stuff. And you, you know, you see the, you know, I think you see the, you know, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but you see the like the darkest side of people that could actually do this to a child. Or, and uh, it's like I said, you have to be able to discuss it, and probably the easiest people to discuss it with which is like you know my the guys who used to uh, my other partner. In Philadelphia, we used to do it together, and you know, we'd be in the um, undercover operation room, and we'd be talking to these guys on the internet. And then in the meantime, we'd be saying things to one another, like, you know, I won't even repeat what we said to one another, but uh, you know, you just have to let off steam that way, and uh, you do let steam off. And like I said, there, I still remember everything, every basically every case I worked, and a lot of the images that I saw that you're never going to forget. But you know, you just have to, you know, you have to find a place for it and say, well, look, this is for the I feel good because I you know helped a lot of kids and I probably I'm sure I prevented a lot of kids from being you know injured and hurt you know by these predators so that, that makes me feel better and it, it was probably the most rewarding or I know it was the most rewarding cases that I ever worked in the bureau so that's how right. I that's how I rationalize it yeah
1: I, I don't know how many times I, I'm gonna say <laughs> during this interview or, or, or think it you know thank God there are people like you who can work it because it right. needs to be worked and I, I, I knew that I couldn't do it. I knew that right. I couldn't do it. All right. So you, you've mentioned a number of times a group one undercover. Before right. we get into that, tell me, when the, you were first asked to do uh, this type of violation, to, to work innocent mm-hmm. images cases, right. what was going on in the office that you felt you needed to step it up and have a uh, undercover investigation?
2: Well, it- you know, you would be following leads from other offices to, uh, you know, to check out, uh, maybe do a search warrant of an individual's house that they had, you know, found in uh, Philadelphia area that, uh, you know, had child pornography images on their computer. And, I, you know, I, I kept saying to uh, my supervisor, you know, there's a lot of guys that are in Philadelphia that we, or that just are out there and. It's like you know, putting you know, fishing in a barrel. You can just, there's so many of them out there that they need to be stopped, and I think that we could probably do, not that we weren't doing good work then, but we could do better work if we actually had the capabilities of actually you know, building our own cases and maybe even actually helping out other offices because not every uh, field office has an innocent images undercover operation. Baltimore was doing a lot of the cases at the time, and they were just being inundated with uh, requests. And, uh, I, you know, I said, this is something I think I want to take on. So I, uh, like I said, I wrote the group one undercover operation and it was approved. And we started, uh, you know, helping out other offices. All right. So what did you do? Well, the one particular case, uh, I had got a call from one of the agents in uh, Pittsburgh. And he said that he'd been contacted by uh, the local authorities, that they had a uh, police officer uh, that was uh, actually meeting. Uh, the parents had um, discovered that the Their kid was meeting with uh, the police officer, and they had discovered uh, conversations on the child's computer, and they found them, you know, very upsetting. So they uh, didn't really know who to contact, and like I said, they contacted the local authority, and local authorities really didn't have the capability to do this kind of uh, work back then, so they contacted our Pittsburgh division. And Pittsburgh did not have an undercover operation, so they, uh, the case agent contacted me, and uh, he said, you know, hey, B, I need your help on something. And uh, so we talked about it, and uh, I said, well, you know, send me everything that you have. The victim in this case was a 14-year-old boy, and he had been uh, meeting this uh, Baden Township police officer for, uh, for sex, and they had met, you know, several times before the parents discovered this. And, uh, so he, you know, I said, well, send me all the chats that they had because if I'm going to take on this kid's persona, I need to know what they said to one another, what they've done with one another, you know, how they arranged the meetings and, and all that type of stuff. So he sent me, um, a lot of the chats that they had and a lot of the conversations and it was, uh, kind of time sensitive because the, uh, police officer wanted to meet, uh, again with the, with the, uh, the child. So I had to like, probably, I don't know, maybe a day's time I had to read all of these, uh, these chat logs and, trying to figure out I had to make sure that I said the right thing because I didn't want this uh, police officer to get spooked. So finally, we, you know, we were ready. So I went into the uh, area that the uh, police officer was in and he, you know, just started chatting with me again. And we were talking and talking about this and, you know, what we had done, you know, in the previous um, encounters in, in the van and, uh, you know, what he wanted to do. To me again and all that type of things, which I won't go into graphic detail, but uh, sure. but you had you know like I said you had to know that kind of stuff. So
1: uh, you know I know by chat uh-huh. you know, you're, you're you're talking about a written chat.
2: Uh-huh. I just
1: wanted to make that clear for people that were listening who may not understand. You, okay, you I'm the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah, you didn't have to verbally. Correct. Discuss this with him. It was all something that you typed in this chat room.
2: Yeah, it was like if you wanted to, look, to compare it with something like like the instant messaging back and forth with one another. Now that they do that type of thing, and uh, so we were in we were in this room, and he said, you know, that uh, he really needed to meet up again. And I and I was like, well, you know, we'll we'll do we'll meet up. We'll meet up. So there was this one uh, particular uh, parking lot he liked to, to meet up in. So I made arrangements uh, to meet up with him. And the FBI in Pittsburgh had a surveillance on him at the police station. So they saw him. I, you know, I was, at the time, the whole time I was talking to, um, the predator, I was talking to the case agent saying, this is what we're saying, this is what we're gonna do. And, uh, you know, I said, well, he, you know, he wants to meet up at this particular location. He's like, okay, give me a few minutes and we'll get, you know, cars over there so that we can set up. So we chatted for a little bit longer and then I finally said that, um, I made I'm trying to think I made up some excuse that oh, I could get out of the house at that time so I was able to, to to go and he pulled out of the police station in his white van and showed up at the uh, the mall there and you know they they were re, you know recording all this and taking it all down and obviously you know the the child wasn't there so he comes back I, I don't know maybe 20 minutes later and I something told me to stay on the the chat or the chat room line so I did I stayed on there and just you know I didn't chat with anybody else but i just kept the line open and uh he came back in he says where well, you know what happened to you? where were you and i said well i couldn't you know i couldn't get out my you know my parents came home and uh i you know i'm not going to be able to get out tonight i was careful not to say you know you want to meet up another time i let him make the suggestion that you know he goes well how about you know we get together tomorrow night and i said oh, i think i can get together you know my parents are you know not going to be here again supposedly and and in the meantime, he said to me, he goes, uh, well, you know, if you're going to get out, he goes, why don't you bring a friend with you? And I said, I think, I, you know, I have a, uh, another person that I could bring with me. So we, we made arrangements again to meet uh, at the same location the, same, uh, the next day, and let, we left it at that. So I told the, the case agent, you know, wh- what was going on, and, and so they made arrangements the next day to – they picked him up at the same location that we were supposed to meet up at and arrested him then. So, that you know, that was – uh, it's probably very, very rewarding the fact that we actually got this guy off, the, you know, the street, because he was uh, at the time he was talking to me. He was also talking to um, a couple other uh, individuals, and I think one of them, if I remember correctly, was was not a minor, but the other one was just in high school. I didn't mention it before, but what was so particular about this police officer is he was he went around to these local uh, schools, like elementary schools and high schools. He was part of the that the um, The D.A.R.E. program, they called it. It was, uh, oh, I think it's Drug Abuse Resistance Education, I think. Uh, I think most people have heard of the D.A.R.E., you know, keep kids off drugs. So, he, you know, he would actually go into these elementary schools and these high schools and talk to these kids, you know, about, you know, staying away from drugs and, uh, you know, how evil the drugs were and all. And uh, so he had access to uh, kids all the time, which was very scary. Oh, uh, extremely. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and so this is
1: not this is just not a case, even though that, and I I don't want to say just, you know, not a case just about having images on their computer because mm-hmm. I understand that that is serious too because it's all about supply and demand. Right. Um, somebody is creating those terrible images of child abuse that somebody is looking at. So. Right. But in this case, not not only was he doing that, but he was actually meeting. With this young fourteen-year-old boy and yes. engaging in physical sexual uh, activities.
2: Yes, they had met uh, according to the the child four times or five times, and then uh, the police officer said it was about five times that they had already met for sex, you know, sexual encounter. If he hadn't have been stopped, he would have just continued continuing with this boy. And, and when they searched his computer, he was in the process of exchanging, you know, other child pornography images with other, you know, uh, pedophiles out there. And he was in the process of talking to other kids to, to arrange meetings with them. So, you know, that was rewarding in the sense that we, you know, got him off the street, curtailed his liaisons for a while.
1: Now, had he taken photographs or videos of his encounters with this young boy?
2: Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. They had the yeah uh-huh. you, know, you know, that's part of like the grooming process when they start talking to these kids is, you know, they'll, they'll show them other images of, of uh, maybe encounters that they've had or encounters that somebody else has had, that, that it's okay for them, you know, it's okay for them to express their desires. It's okay for them to do it, in other words. You know, nobody's going to get angry with them.
1: Yeah, look look at these pictures. Other kids have done it. It's okay. Right. You mm-hmm. can do it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so those pictures of this young boy, mm-hmm. you know, are still out there. They're they're probably being shared and, and viewed by pedophiles,
2: you know, all over the world. There's yep. nothing... Nothing you could do about it. <laughs> and right. That's why it's hard, you know, hard to, to describe to your kids nowadays. You know, I have a niece and nephew. and It's like, don't put anything out there that you don't want people to see because you're never going to get it off. And uh, so this this poor kid, who's probably, oh my god, he's I know, I know he's in his uh, maybe his twenties now. I you know haven't been able to follow up to see how he's doing. You know, he's going to be emotionally scarred for the rest of his life. And hopefully, you know, we'll be able to overcome what you know this individual's done to him. Do we know how they met? There's the rooms and and the, the actual chat rooms that you have to – some chat rooms you have to be asked to enter. But they have – these um, child predators have a whole network of other child predators and different sites that they know to go to if, if, if they want different uh, – if they want a, a young boy, if they want a young girl, if they want both. I mean, it's a whole – it's unbelievable, the whole <laughs> – it's, it's almost like a uh, I can't even describe it it's almost like a um, enterprise that they have you know and they, you know they make a lot of money off of sharing these things too and
1: I, I want to be very clear that by mm-hmm. asking this next question I am in no way trying to blame the victim right but I'm trying to get an understanding of why the child goes to that site.
2: Sometimes kids are curious and other times kids have these urges and, you know, they may, they may feel a tendency to be drawn towards, uh, you know, if they're a young boy, be, be drawn towards other young boys and, you know, and they find out about these, you know, you know how kids are yourself that they can basically get on the internet and find out anything they want to. And, uh, somehow they, you know, this kid found this site that this, uh, police officer was in and, uh, they started chatting and, like I said, he was part of his uh, grooming process i i think they talked for about a month together before they actually met and uh this 14 year old from what he says and i am I'm, I'm not going to say he w- wasn't telling the truth but it was his first time he'd ever actually had a, a sexual encounter with a, you know somebody you know like i said the grooming process he felt comfortable enough to, you know to meet with this guy and, and to uh what he thought was okay and it was the right thing to do because this you know, child predator actually, you know, basically convinced him that it was okay to do. That's so it,
1: scary. I mean, it's yeah, just it so scary as a parent that, you know, mm-hmm. you have your young child, you know, on the Internet meeting these strangers and being groomed that way. So what mm-hmm. happened at the end? Did uh, the boy have to testify? Did the uh, police officer, and I hate to keep calling him a police officer. I know, I know. But this, this person, <laughs> uh-huh. this, uh child predator, right. uh, did he flee? Um, how did the case end? Probably the
2: only decent thing that Predator's ever done in his life was he pled out so that the child, uh, the victim did not have to testify in court. Otherwise the child would have had to go to court and testify to all the encounters that they had and how they met and all that. But, uh, you know, he pled out and, um, he was event- eventually sentenced to his 90, 90 months, which is what? A little over seven years in jail. Wow. And then when, I think when he got out, he, he, uh, was on probation and he had to register as a, um, a sex offender. Probably as a tier two, which is, a, if I'm remembering correctly, you actually had an encounter with a minor, a sexual encounter with a minor. You'll probably have to register to that, and I think that's, you have to, that's a mandatory of 25 years. I think you have to be on the, the, the list for, as a sex offender. So, now, this
1: particular case was significant because it was a police officer, but yeah. I would imagine um, you worked this uh, violation for seven years. This is mm-hmm. just one of many similar times where you went online pretended that you were a victim and right. were able to lure in a predator.
2: Right. In the Innocent Images program, we called it what we called the travelers. There were there was known chat rooms these predators hung out in. So we would actually go into those those rooms, and, I, you know, you were in there for, I don't know, you went into a room, me you were in there for maybe 10 seconds, and you at any given time you could be talking anywhere between, you know, 8, 10, 12 guys at the same time that were interested in, you know, and you and uh so we we call them travelers because to be a federal fence back then had they had to travel over state lines and you know you would go in there and you talk with them and then uh you would make actually uh you never uh, ask them for anything you know to meet or anything you always let them do it and you know they would get in there and they'd talk to you and you know be, you'd be talking to some of these guys for just a week or so and then you, some of them you would talk to for a month or so kind of sounds sick, but you had to know the ones that were really serious about meeting up with you or if they were just, you know, feeling everything out because they were new to the whole, you know, the whole scene. You know, the ones that you, that you uh, felt were the ones that uh, really were serious about it, then you, you know, you started talking with them. And I would make arrangements to meet them at a hotel. And you wanted to make sure that they gave you the hotel. and And the more that you could do to actually tie them down, like, I know the one guy I, I asked, uh, well, you have to bring me some kind of a present so that I know, you know, that you really, you know, are in love with me or whatever, and so he brought me uh, a red rose, and you had to make sure that that was in the chat, that, you know, he was bringing you a red rose, and he was going to meet up at a certain hotel, and when he did, uh, he showed up at the hotel, and we, you know, myself and the other agents, were you know, we were hanging out in the lobby, and, you know, we saw him, we knew what he looked like, and uh, we made sure that he actually went up to the register, and he And he actually, you know, paid for the hotel room and everything before we. And he was started on his way up to the hotel room, before we actually arrested him. And then when we, you know, we arrested him and took possession of his vehicle, we found the red rose and all those things were like circumstantial. But you know, the hotel room he had registered, and he brought the rose, and a certain time he was going to do it, and all that was brought up, you know, in um, the court proceedings. And he actually (laughs) was stupid enough to, you know, he. To go to trial, but he didn't want to go to trial with a jury. He wanted to go to trial just by a judge. So we had to go through the whole entire trial process, where all the transcripts were read and and uh, you know all the graphic images that he had sent were you know were shown. And uh, he actually got sentenced uh, to, you know by the judge. I think it was at the time it was five years, which just doesn't seem like a whole lot of time for these guys. But he you know his his defense and his defense attorney said, well, there was no real victim involved, which it was always a sore spot with me and, and, you know, agents work in this case is, yeah, it wasn't – you say it wasn't a real person or a real victim, but it would have been if it had been some other little child that he was going to meet up with.
1: Oh, and,
2: absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that that was always – that was their defense in every single case. Most of them didn't go to trial because they didn't want the embarrassment. but the ones that did go, that was their defense that, you know, there was no real victim involved.
1: Over the seven-year period, how many subjects would you say you were able to identify and uh, bring charges against?
2: Oh Lord, um, there was—I don't even know. I mean, it was between myself and the other individuals at the time it worked it, there was uh, there was a lot. Maybe uh, I don't know, hundreds of them. I mean, it, it's 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 like I said, a fish in a barrel. There's just it never stops. I mean, wow. as soon as you got one, you there'd be another one, and I'm sure it's been seven years, but I know it's probably gotten worse now because they have you know Facebook and and Twitter and all those other things that they really have to be careful of. Wow, mm-hmm.
1: I mean, when you said hundreds, I kind of shuddered a little bit. When you when you're doing this undercover mm-hmm. uh, role, you know, for every case, you have to decide who you are and also mm-hmm. where you're located, so you're not always somebody. A young boy or a young girl in the Philadelphia area, right. depending on where the predator is, you right. make that decision as to where you are.
2: Right, and you know it's difficult sometimes, and I'm sure it's, it's like I said it's more difficult now because when, when I was doing it back then, you did, they just wanted phone calls, so you that was easy enough to set up, you know, with the number the undercover lines we had. But now, I mean, if, when I left, they were starting to want pictures of you know just of you, and which is harder and harder to get because you really can't manufacture a picture of a, of a child. You, you actually have to have, you know, a picture. And uh, so it was a little bit more difficult. But, you know, you would. we got a lot of uh, agents to, to actually give us their pictures, you know, from when they were younger. And, you know, th- they knew when they were giving these pictures up that they, you know, were going to be out there for good. But, you know, I have to commend them for allowing us to use them. So it was, it was difficult because um, you had to coordinate with the, ca- the case agent. And, like, it's, I've been using Arizona a lot. Because you didn't know the, you didn't know that you know the geography or anything. So if these guys were saying something, you didn't know, you know what you were talking about. They'd be like, a lot of them would say, "Are you a cop?" or "Are you really who you say you are?" And you know, you had to get out of that. And sometimes you, sometimes you didn't get out of it. You know, there was a couple that just like, I don't, I'm not talking to you anymore because I know you don't know who you say you are and all that. So, but then that that would lead to, well, maybe I got to change my. Um, identity, because you know he's going to put it out there that so and so, you know, using the screen name is a is a cop, so don't talk to him anymore. So you had to be careful with that. It, there's a lot of little glitches in there that you had to be careful of. Well, this is just unbelievable.
1: You know, I know, uh, you know, as as an FBI agent, that this was going on, that there were law mm-hmm. enforcement people in these chat rooms pretending to be, you know, children. Are in some cases, I guess, other predators trying to hear what's going on with an, another predator. Right. Um, so, we all knew at any moment a predator could be talking to somebody in law enforcement. They had to know that, too. So, why were they in there? Why did
2: they risk that? Because they can't control themselves. You know, what angers me is when you, you see these, these child predators get out and they're like, oh, he's cured now. It's, it's not, they can't be cured. It's like, um, I always tell somebody, it's like being an alcoholic. You always have to watch. You, you, you can't go back to the drinking. Well, these guys, you know, it, it's like telling uh, a normal person that, you know, you can't love your husband or your wife. They That's what they're, instead of loving them, their wife, they love little kids. It, it's, an, it's hard to explain them. And it's a desire and a need that they just are willing to take that chance to so have. So it's some of
1: wiring uh, mm-hmm. taken right. in their brain
2: mm-hmm.
1: that can't be fixed, can't be right. rewired.
2: No, I, I'm a firm believer, in I, a lot of a lot of you know experts, Ken Lanning, who's a he's a huge a pioneer of uh, innocent images and, and the child predators. He'll, he'll tell you right up front that these guys can't be cured, and they can't be. It's, and a lot of them will, will go for being oh the what is it called? Uh, they have to take the oh the shots, the testosterone shots or whatever to you know try and curtail that. But you know a lot of them will be willing to take it, but then they don't like the side effects, so they stop taking it, and they, you know, start back up to what they were doing. So I, I'm one of these people that they can't be cured, so don't, don't try and tell me that when they tell me that they are, you know.
1: So you did this for seven years. Uh-huh. Why did you stop?
2: Well, I retired. I came down with MS. Back in 99, I was diagnosed with it. It got to the point where I, you know, between the stress of the job and everything, I was like, I have to, you know, for, for my health reasons, I had to retire. Probably as long as they let me do it, I would have still continued doing it. That was really the only reason why I stopped working. It just because I had to retire. So I know there's you know people in Philadelphia that are still carrying on, and I hope you know I, it's an extremely important violation. And I know that all that's going on in the world with terrorism and all that needs to be addressed. But we can't forget that this is happening to our kids, and and it's a terrible thing to say. But I feel it's only going to get worse because of the internet and it's going to you know you you have to consider the child trade you know sexual trading and and all these other countries and and you know the sex trade is is predominant in you know other countries and we have a lot of americans that travel over there too, you know partake in it because it's not illegal over there unfortunately it's something that's not going to go away and we need to keep working on it even though it's uh, you know for every one person you get there's there's another 10 20 of them out there you know it's frustrating and you know, people. I don't think they realize it until maybe they start seeing seeing what's going on.
1: I was going to ask you. I mean, we talk about this police officer. Were there other professions that these predators belong to that kind of
2: shocked you? Oh, you had you had uh, doctors, lawyers, dentists. Um, you know, I, get, I think the people, when they first see, think of a sexual predator, they're like, oh, this really creepy old guy that sits in his basement all day and just chats on the line. But, you know, for example, this police officer was married and had three children and was living an exemplary life besides the fact that he was a child predator. No one suspected it. His wife said she didn't suspect it. You know, these people lived a normal everyday life, supposedly, and uh, they had a secret life. It's very scary because you know I always say, "Well, what do you don't know what your next door neighbor's doing?" And it kind of, the bad thing about it. Is I think it kind of makes you distrustful of people.
1: When do you, you think, think that, that happened to you? That you? Oh
2: yeah, I, I definitely think because I mean I know that you know. There are people out there that just like kids and they're, they're willing to just help them out with things. But I always get distrustful of them initially, and, and I know that's not the, probably the right thing to do. But it does—that is one of the bad things about it. You do become distrustful of people's motives when they're, especially when they're around kids. It left me—I don't know if it leaves everybody that way, but I know that I am distrustful when I see somebody, you know, paying extra extraordinary, extraordinary attention to kids when they don't have any, and they're, you know, it's—it's it's hard to explain. <laughs> No, I I,
1: I mm-hmm. get it. I get mm-hmm. it. All right, let me ask you some technical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you mentioned that Americans travel to different countries to mm-hmm. engage in you know these sexual crimes against kids. Right. Did I do I understand correctly that it is illegal in the U.S. for an American citizen to travel outside right. of the country? Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about that.
2: They, well, I, I, I'm just, I'm going to use Thailand for an example. If they, they go over there to, uh, to have, uh, you know, sex with, uh, with minors and, you know, little, we're talking little kids, five, six, seven years old. Um, and a lot of businessmen will travel over there to do it. And when I left, they were trying to, uh, get a, a grasp on some of these, these guys that were traveling and they were trying to figure out some way that they could arrest them, you know, for, for doing this and, uh, when I, like I said, when I left, this was, this was another whole big initiative that they were taking on. The child uh, sex trade in, in the United States um, is, you know, you don't want to think that that exists, but it does. I mean, um, not getting off topic, but I, I remember that they brought one of these uh, oh, young girls into one of our training classes to talk to us that has actually been a, a slave. She hung out at a, uh, oh, a, a truck stop. And the the her operator or pimp or whatever you want to call him, uh, you know, she would hang out at the truck stop and she would go around to these uh, guys, and you know, perform various uh, you know sexual activities and he uh, we was selling her out for sex and that was a, that was a, another sex trade that I know the bureau was trying to get into but that you know it's more difficult because it's and how was, how old was she when she did this? She was 16 when she was talking to us so she was like 12 years old when she had done it. And she just happened she was lucky enough to get out and, uh, you know, lucky enough to come across, um, you know, people that cared enough about her to get her out. And then she was willing to actually come to these classes and talk to us about, you know, how these things happen and how they work. And, you know, it's it's a typical thing you see on, you know, you see on television that these girls get on the bus and go to the big cities and... They actually have people waiting for them to get off the bus and you know start you know talking to them and grooming them and saying you know befriending them and trying to get them you know comfortable with them and it, it kind of operates as something like that but not as dramatic as you know how they portray it on television.
1: All right, and another question I have: you had indicated that when you first started working this violation, and again, what were the years that the seven-year period that you worked? Uh, from 2000. So you were saying that during this time period. A lot of local uh, law enforcement agencies were not working this. And I know that since 9-11, many things that the Bureau used to do, you know, we don't have the manpower and resources to do right. it as much because we're mm-hmm. concentrating on terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know now if local law enforcement is more involved?
2: Well, I, I definitely know that they are because um, when, I, besides uh, doing the innocent images, I actually... Um, what we call—I not I hope it's still in existence in Philadelphia. It was called the Crimes Against Children uh, Multi-Agency Working Group, and that involved a lot of, you know, other federal agencies, uh, Postal Service, um, Secret Service, but it also involved a lot of local, like local police departments, throughout the Philadelphia metropolitan area. And they were setting up their own. They would go for training, usually to Baltimore, because I keep referring to them. But they're they're where the Innocent Images started, and they're really good at you know training everybody. They would go there, and they would you know pick up the training, and then they would learn how to, you know how to learn how to set up their undercover operations. And I know when I left, a lot of local law enforcement was uh, you know taking on our Innocent Images, how, how you know how we collected the uh, chat logs, and how we collected the evidence, and how we you know went around to arresting them. They were using our our uh, program as a, you know as their as their program I should say.
1: Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say that would sum up the work that you did with Innocent Images
2: and Crimes Against Children? Well, I think the only thing, like I said, it, w- it was the most rewarding uh, work that I did in the bureau, and you know, besides doing the Innocent Images, I also went around to uh, local schools and talked to kids, and I went meet with you know. Uh, parent groups like PTAs and all that and I stress to the parents don't think because your kid is in the house on the computer that he's safe so know what your kid's doing and be a nosy and be a spy and be accused of you know ruining their lives but you know, know what your kid's doing on the Internet. Cause he's, just because, like I said, he's in the house and you know what he, where he is doesn't, doesn't mean that they're going to be safe from these guys. That's why I even joined Facebook to keep track of my niece and nephew. You know, you have to be, you have to be diligent. And, and don't ever think that it can happen to your kids because I don't know how many parents, you know, that I talked to said, oh, that my child would never do something like that. And then you show them what they've been doing and they're like, I didn't know that they could do this. You know, you have to, you have to start being almost as savvy as your kid on the computer as, as they are. You're the first line of defense, and you know. you have children. You know how sometimes they can, how sneaky they can be if they really want to do something. You know, so they find a way to do something if they if they really want to do it. And these guys are good at you know coaxing them how to get around their parents and stuff. So it's it's there and it's not going to go away. So people need to be aware of it.
1: Now I know working innocent images and crimes against children was very important to you, but Mm -hmm. I also know that there was another time uh, that you were involved in. Uh, FBI investigation that was also very important and had a a dramatic effect on you and that would be working 9-11. Could you talk to me a little bit about that and and what you were assigned to do in those early days after the uh, planes went into the tower?
2: Well, I, you know, they always ask, everybody always ask where were you when, when the, uh, John F. K. was assassinated? Well, now they, they ask people, where were you when 9-11 happened? And I was actually in our uh, squad area, um, squad 10, and I was getting ready to go over to our, our offsite. And uh, our uh, evidence response team coordinator came running to the office saying, you know, be the uh, World Trade Center has been hit by a plane. And so pack your bags. We're going to, you know, New York. I was like, oh my God. So uh, we were the, f- uh, up there that night in newark and we got our assignments that uh, we were going into uh, new york the next day and i remember going through the uh, you know the holland tunnel they had they had all traffic stops so nobody was allowed to go in through the holland tunnel but they let law enforcement go through and that's the first time in my life that i've ever uh gone through the holland tunnel without uh any traffic because if you remember me saying that i you know uh did surveillance in new york city for seven for seven years so that i use that tunnel every day but that was just an eerie feeling
1: so you were assigned to go up because you were a member of ERT, the Evidence Response Team. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, response uh-huh. Evidence team.
2: Response Team, right. Mm-hmm.
1: And how long and had you been doing that? Since
2: 1998, so what is that, seven, nine years, yeah, nine years we've been doing it. Before okay, and, this,
1: mm-hmm. and being a member of the Evidence Response Team was a mm-hmm. collateral duty, something Correct. that you did in addition to your regular assignments on a squad working various violations.
2: Right. That was a, a whole separate entity. And, you know, we we got, we got had a good, you know, to Quantico and uh, actually, you know, be trained on all types of different, you know, body recovery, blood analysis, you know, photography and all that. I think at the time there was 12 of us in Philadelphia, and then I think there was one or two in each, like, RE that we had. And we were all, the whole team was called up from all the RAs and the whole, you know, from Philadelphia to go up there. But we got uh, up to New York, and they assigned the Philadelphia Division to the uh, Fresh Kill Landfill up in in, uh, Staten Island. And that's where all the debris from the World Trade Centers was taken to Staten Island and gone through methodically. I mean, we were looking for the black boxes and all that. So we were were assigned up there for the first, uh, we were there for a little over a month the first time we went up.
1: How long after the towers came down did you go out uh, to New York to start uh, beginning the collection of evidence?
2: Uh, we were there. The we were actually in Newark the night before, and then we were there the next day. And, and I remember initially going into the city, and there was places where, um, you know, you couldn't hardly breathe. And the the cloud was so bad. Uh, and seeing you know seeing people, you know they saw they saw that we were FBI, and, and we had you know people coming up to us and handing us pictures of a loved one, saying please, you know, could you help us find our person, you know, our, our sister, or brother, or whatever. And yeah, you know, that's it's heart wrenching because you know. You were thinking in the back of your mind, these people are not alive now. There was other teams up there, but um, our uh, evidence response team coordinator uh, and our team leader, both of them, were extremely instrumental in setting up the whole entire operation in uh, the fresh kill. And uh, I can't give the you know the one guy um, enough you know credit for uh, actually setting it up, the, you know the whole process of you know recovery and 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 whatnot. And I don't know if they ever did a special on the fresh kill, but it, it, like I said, all the all the debris from the World Trade Center, everything was brought there, and you know we had to physically physically go through everything, you know, that was that was you know in that rubble, including there were body parts, there were you know personal um, mementos and and uh, any anything that would you know, it wasn't a body part, anything that would identify a loved one, uh, you know, to help identify these people that you know. That some of them never really got any closure because you know, the, let's face it, the the uh, ground zero was it was the resting place for a lot of, of people's loved ones because they never recovered any of their body parts or anything.
1: So you've given these photos to, to be able to uh-huh. share with listeners um, uh-huh. of uh, you at uh, Fresh Kills, and you've got the are they called Tyvek's
2: Tyvek suits on? Yeah, we had the uh, Tyvek suits, respirators. I mean, it was. It was, you know you were going through a lot of stuff that was very hazardous to your health I mean, the whole fresh kill uh, landfill was methane gas I mean underneath of the, you could see on a rainy day you could see the, the methane bubbling out from underneath of the ground and if it ever stormed or lightning we had to get off the um, the whole uh, area because it, you know it could have struck lightning but uh, what happened was all of the debris from the world Trade center was put on these huge barges and the barges were brought to Staten island and from from the barges they were loaded into these huge dump trucks and then the dump trucks would take and bring it up to the to the landfill, and they would lay it in one big heap. And then you would have these um, uh, front loaders take it and spread it out in lines. And uh, you would go, you know, through the lines, you know, piece by piece, and you'd pick up anything that you, you know, you saw, or if, you know, uh, like I said, we were looking for the black boxes and everything. And uh, you know, if it was a if it was a momentum, um, you know, unfortunately, the first like two or three weeks, we found a lot of. Uh, of body parts, but there was, um, you know, sometimes and you different...
1: physically um, this conveyor belt of mm-hmm. debris would come by, mm-hmm. and you physically would identify and remove and store human body parts.
2: That the first month or so we were up there, they didn't have the conveyor belt; they actually laid the stuff out in lines, and the the local police and all that were instructed if you found anything that looked like human remains to come and get one of us and. Myself and another agent were, that was kind of like, I hate to say this, our specialty of recovering human human parts. So the two of us, they would come over and get us and we'd say, yeah, that looks human or, um, you know, we're not quite sure uh, if it was just, a, you know, a bone or something. We initially, or eventually they got a, a forensic anthropologist to come up and uh, help us identify if it was just a bone, if it was human or not. But yeah, that for the first, uh, like a month or so, we just did the lines and then when we went back, they f- um, after the debris had been gone through that way, they actually took the, the, the debris that had already been gone through and put it on these long conveyor belts, and we would sit there and go through things if we saw a wedding ring. I mean, we, we found that, um, actually a couple wedding rings um, that were going through. And, you know, that, it doesn't seem like a lot, but that means a whole lot to somebody that um, has lost their loved one. And, you know, you'd find maybe a wallet or a piece of a wallet or a picture, and all these, you know, these things were all laid out for the, you know, the victims of the families to go through and see if they could identify any of it. So that was, um, I forget how many people we actually identified through DNA from the body parts that were recovered up there. But, uh, you know, so, my heart goes out to the, 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 I, to me, the real heroes are those, um, firemen that went in and the ones that were, went through all that rubble initially to, to, to recover the, the, the police officers and firemen, so. It's, it's, so
1: during your FBI career, I mean, Mm -hmm. you have investigated or or been a part of um, investigations that really, really took an emotional toll on you. I mean, first, you know, working uh, 9-11 and being assigned to retrieve human body parts, you know, from Mm -hmm. a a disastrous, horrendous terrorist attack. And then uh, you working... On you know a child predator case where you're seeing these these horrific images of of child abuse. Mm-hmm. I mean, your career has has been uh, an emotional sacrifice. <laughs> I, I, I can yeah, I can honestly you know call it an emotional sacrifice you know for uh, the FBI and, and, and for the country.
2: Well, you know, like I said, I'm just one person, but there there are so many people out there, like I said, our whole ERT team and all the other ERT teams and all the Innocent Images people, you know, there's a bunch of us out there, and thank God, you know, we all want to do it. I can only see for myself, but I'm sure that if you ask everybody else, they'd say if they had, knowing what they know, they'd do it all over again, and I would because it, it was very rewarding. And, you know, when I start, you know, you, you're you never going to forget those things. And when you start thinking about it or you, you see stuff on television about it, you know, you say to yourself, well, you know, it's bad, but I helped a lot of people, you know, come to some type of closure or I helped a lot of these victims, you know, I helped a lot of kids to stop being victimized because we put these guys, you know, away before they were allowed to do something. So, it, it, you know, like I said, it doesn't go away, but it, you, you know, you feel like you've accomplished something.
0: And that's the end of the show. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, I have pictures of B. I also have links to a newspaper article about one of the child predator cases we discussed, and I have a link to the FBI overview about the crimes against children and the child predator uh, program. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, I have all the social media share buttons. So please tweet it, post it on Facebook, let others know about the episode and the podcast. So this is the part of the show where we talk about crime fiction. And the novel that I read this week was Beautiful Lies by Lisa Unger. Beautiful Lies is about a woman who receives in the mail a faded picture of a woman who looks like her and a little girl and a note that says, Are you my daughter? Now, this woman has been raised by a loving mother and father. And so she is confused and intrigued. And it's about her quest to find out who she really is. Now, Lisa Unger actually has 14 novels, but this is the first time I read anything from her, and I enjoyed it. It was written in first person with her actually talking to the reader and telling her story. It was a different voice, it was a different way of introducing a character, and I thought it was refreshing. The story is very fast paced at the beginning. At the end, it gets a little slower and you kind of know where it's going, but the writing was good. The descriptions were good. The relationships and the character development was very good. And I would recommend it. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, The only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.